We are studying the life of David. As I said last week, really what we're doing is we're looking at who God is and how he reveals himself through the life of David, the things that David does and the things that happen to David. And this is really, this is really one of the greatest passages for getting a glimpse into the heart of God. This passage here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I was thinking about um, this passage as we were singing that hymn, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. I love that we did that one. It's one of my favorite hymns. It was written by John Newton, who also wrote the last hymn that we did, Amazing Grace. The original title of Amazing Grace, as you saw, was Faith's Review and Expectation. And I'll, I'll tell you about that one later when we get to the end of the sermon, where that came from and uh, but the, I ask the Lord is fascinating because there's that line in there about the Lord crossing my fair design, right? Remember, it seemed he crossed my fair designs. And what's fascinating about that line in that hymn is that this, this hymn came out in a book of hymns called the Olney Hymns, O-L-N-E-Y. That's a place in England. It's a little town. It was mostly a town of poor lace workers. Uh, but William Cooper lived there, a great poet um, and hymn writer, as well as John Newton. And John Newton and William Cooper, back in the early 1800s, had decided, actually it was the late middle of the 1700s, they had decided that they were going to put together a collection of hymns. And so they kind of divvied up who would cover which areas, right? Cooper would do some, and John Newton would do others. Now the cool thing about this is that William Cooper was the poet laureate of England, He's one of England's great poets, and he wants to devote some of his talent to writing songs for the church, which is a pretty awesome thing, right? Wouldn't that be great if the greatest poets in the world today decided that they wanted to write songs for us to sing in church? That would be awesome. Well, it seemed like a good plan, and so they started working on this, and Cooper did um, a few hymns, and then he went insane. He fell into a sort of a dark despair Eventually, he basically had to be institutionalized, and he never wrote any more hymns. Now, it's a tragic story, and John Newton, in the preface to the Olney Hymns, writes about this story, and he says that it, you know, we proposed this plan. It seemed like a great plan, but before we had gotten very far into our project of writing all these hymns, it seemed, he says, that the Lord crossed our fair design. He uses that exact same phrase that's in the hymn we sang, it's also in the preface when he describes William Cooper going insane and not being able to finish the work. And it's so tragic because, as John Newton says in the intro to that book, we intended this not just to be a collection of hymns, but a monument to the great friendship that God had built between the two of us. And all of that came crashing down. And you could tell he struggled. He, he actually says, for a long time, I put the project aside. I just had no strength to finish it. We almost never had Amazing Grace. And other hymns like Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, or Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, How Sweet the Name Jesus Sounds. So many of the best loved hymns in the history of the church came from that collection. There's a fountain filled with blood, another one. And that whole collection was almost completely shelved. But finally, John Newton decided to pick it back up again. But he writes how it was really with a heavy heart that he finished the collection and eventually published it. Now, I think that actually sets us up well for this passage tonight. Because here in 2 Samuel 7, David is now at rest from all his enemies. 
And they're not just his personal enemies. They're the enemies that are trying to wipe out God's people, Israel. And if they wipe out Israel, they wipe out the seed line of the Messiah. And as I've been telling you, that promise from Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent will never come to pass if the seed line of the Messiah is wiped out. And so it seems now that they're at rest from their enemies, it seems like uh, a great time to build a temple for God. And David and Nathan talk about this, and we'll see what God has to say about it. Let's look at our passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a great example of how things seem really like great ideas to us at the time, but for some reason or another, God often has very different plans. Except in this case, God's plan is actually really good news and exciting. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. After the king, that means David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, that's luxurious, in case you didn't know, while the ark of God, remember we talked about the ark, which communicates God's presence himself, I'm living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. See, there's a camping passage, right? Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as it was at the beginning. And I have done at that time, ever since the time I appointed leaders of my people Israel, I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far. 
And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. And there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself. And to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God... Keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. And we pray, Lord, that you will bless not only the reading, but the preaching of your holy word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's basically two parts, two parts basically to this thing tonight. There is God's promise, and then there is this pondering and praying that is the response to the promise. But let's, let's dig into this, shall we? So, you know, what's amazing about the, this passage, Nathan the prophet. See, prophets aren't always the smartest people. Uh, the people that God uses sometimes make mistakes, and this is a great example of that. Beware, beware, this passage would say to us, thinking that all of your good ideas, no matter how great they sound, are what God intends. Nobody should ever say what Nathan says here. Whatever you want to do, just go do it, because God is obviously with you. Just because God has been with you in the past, just because God has given David rest from all his enemies, does not mean that he, whatever he dreams up, he has to believe God is with him and he just should run out and do it. This should give us pause when we hear people say that if you just pray with faith, with lots of faith, that you can ask for anything you want and it will sort of become God's will because you prayed for it and basically demanded it. No. No, David wants to build God a house, and it seems that it's a noble desire. It seems like a good idea. It seems that his intentions are pure. Now, we do learn from Chronicles that another reason, not spelled out in this passage, but another reason that God didn't want David to build him his house was that he was a warrior. And God said that because you are a warrior and your hands have spilled blood, you will not be the one to build my house. In fact, it will be your son, Solomon. But here, the focus is different. Here, the focus is on God has a different plan and a different idea, right? 
I mean, David's feeling a little guilty. He's living in a house, in a palace, a cedar palace, while God is living in a tent. And he says, all right, I'm going to build him a house. What do you think, Nathan? They said, great idea, go for it. And then God speaks. And then God speaks and says, that's not my idea. My priorities are different than your priorities. And here's what I love about this passage. When you get into the why God says, you aren't going to be the one to build me a house, you get this amazing glimpse into the gospel and into the heart of our God. Why does God have a different plan? Well, look at verse 6. He says, I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. And then it says in verse 7, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So the first thing to see is God is content to be in a tent. And why is God content to be in a tent? Because he wants to be with his people in their presence on the move. Basically, God is saying, as long as my people are homeless and unsettled, I too will be homeless and unsettled. Why? Because the heart of God, God, the sovereign Lord, as is emphasized over and over and over in this passage, the heart of the sovereign God is to put his people before himself. Now, for sort of upper middle class Americans, you know, that shouldn't, it probably doesn't surprise us. We think, well, of course, you know, that's, that's what God does, right? You've heard about this story about Christianity and the cross. But do you understand how crazy this must have seemed to David? Well, you get a sense of it when you see the way he prays. The way he prays, you can tell that he's utterly blown away by what God says. When God says, I will establish your house, David, before you can build a house for me. And there is a word play here in the Hebrew. The word used for house can have two meanings. It can refer to a physical structure or it can also refer to a dynasty. Now we all know what a dynasty is, right? Yeah, because we all watch that show. Um, so, that, so what God is saying is, uh, you don't need to build me a house, a physical house, until I've established your dynasty. And then you have to ask, why is that? And then he says, because my goal is to establish your throne forever. And he reiterates here, God reiterates through this dream that he gives Nathan, the promise of the covenant, now, the covenant is, a, is kind of a biblical word, and it's an important word. It appears, actually, at the very end of this chapter. But <coughs> what the covenant is, is basically an agreement, but it's a special kind of agreement. It's an agreement that is basically imposed from a more powerful person to a less powerful person. And in the ancient world, kings would establish covenants with their subjects. The king would determine what was to be done and the nature of the relationship. And then there would be blessing and cursing. If you keep the terms of the relationship that I'm laying out, you will be blessed. If you don't keep the terms, you will be cursed. That's what a covenant is. And then the general practice was they would... Uh, like you see this in the story of Abraham, they would take animals, they would cut them in pieces, they would spread the pieces apart, and then the two people that were making the agreement would walk hand in hand through the pieces of the animal. And what they were saying by this ritual was, if I fail to keep my end of this agreement, may it be done to me as has been done to these animals. 
Now, what's remarkable in the Bible is that God establishes a covenant with his people. His people break the covenant over and over and over again. And eventually, Jesus comes and takes the curse of the covenant. This is why Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, says, Cursed is everyone hung on a tree. And Jesus was hung on a tree at the cross. In keeping with what Deuteronomy said, that cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. But what Christianity understands... What Christianity understands is, yes, he was cursed. He bore the curse of the covenant. Everything you've ever done to mess up your relationship with God, Jesus suffered for. That's the heart of this. And in this passage, God is saying, I'm not going to establish your house, David, because I'm content to put my people first. And you're going to see that. Because I'm going to keep this promise. I'm going to establish your house forever. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. He puts his own people first before his own comfort. And like I said, it's not just for the people in David's day. This is what he says in verse 10, right? I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they have a home of their own and are no longer disturbed, right? And ultimately, that promise is still waiting the full, the fullness. Because what do we have ahead of us if we are Christians? We have a city coming that is such a safe place. The Bible describes it as a city with the gates wide open. Now, in the ancient world, the reason you have a city is for protection. And it doesn't make any sense to have a city with the gates wide open. But the book of Revelation speaks about a city that is coming down to this place. When all things will be made new, we will have a city that is so secure and so safe and such a refuge that there will be no need for the gates to be closed. That's the picture. And this passage is promising that. Now, there's going to be more details revealed about this promise as the Bible progresses. But this is a significant point in the storyline of the Bible. When God makes this covenant promise to David and to Israel. So we see the heart of God when we look at his different plan. His plan is not to say, okay, great, we got to Jerusalem. Awesome. I've got a group of people. They love me. They worship me. They're excited about me. And we're all in Jerusalem. All right, let's just, let's just rest now. Let's just rest. Let's just hang out. You guys can just sort of sing praises to my name and we'll just hang out here forever. No. The God of the Bible is the great missionary God. And he's not content to just have Jerusalem. He's not just content to have a largely Israeli group of people worshiping him. Because as he's said repeatedly throughout the Bible before this passage and after, he's committed to building a kingdom of people of every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. No, the story isn't done just because there's a city of David now and there's the Ark of the Covenant is now in the city. The story still has a lot, a lot of developing to come. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate expression of the plan and the heart of God revealed in this passage. Let's look at that briefly, right? So here's what we're getting. 
the heart of God, here's the heart of God that you need to see in this passage. God is committed to putting his people first. Now, like I said, as, as, as Americans growing up in sort of a privileged consumer kind of culture, we just sort of assume that everything exists for us. Have you ever heard about uh, one of my favorite essays by this guy, Rodney Clapp, is called The Sin of Winnie the Pooh. Do you know about this essay? I don't think I've ever shared this with you. It's one of my favorite essays. Um, the Sin of Winnie the Pooh is basically this. Um, Winnie the Pooh hears a bee, you know, buzzing, and he says, oh, now the only reason I know for a bee to be buzzing is if, you know, it exists, and if it exists, then it must exist for one reason, which is to make honey, and the reason that bees make money, honey is so that Pooh Bears can eat it. It basically is the ultimate in utilitarianism. In other words, bees don't have any purpose except to make honey so that I can eat it. And he says in so many ways that sin of Winnie the Pooh is the heart of every one of us in a consumer culture. Everything exists for us and nothing more than that. And that's what we live. So when you, when you see the heart of God saying, I'm going to put me before you, some of you are probably thinking, well, of course, I'm pretty great. Why wouldn't he put me before him? And so to understand why this is such an amazing passage, you have to understand who God is. God is the sovereign Lord who's so holy. You remember last week that when poor Uzzah reached out and touched the side of the Ark of the Covenant, he was struck dead. That's the God who puts us first. The God in whose presence we can't even stand without being obliterated. That's the God who puts us first. The God who by all, all that is right in the world should have wiped humanity off the planet when mankind rebelled against him and spurned his love. That's the God who puts us first. Do you understand the revelation of the heart of God here? Do you think of God that way or do you think of God as somebody who's kind of annoyed by you most of the time? Who kind of puts up with you because he kind of has to. Uh, was it, uh, I think it was, it was Sartre or it was Camus, I can't remember, that one of them on their deathbed was asked if they were afraid to meet God and their classic answer was, oh no, God will forgive me. That's his job. I think we trivialize God so much of the time. And think he just exists for us to make us happy. But do you understand who the God of the Bible is? And then you see this revelation of his heart. It's extraordinary. And the gospel will never be the sweet good news that changes your life until you understand who it is that puts you first in the gospel. And Jesus is the ultimate expression of this. Jesus is the one who in John chapter 1 it says, tabernacled among us. That's what that word, the tent, it's the tabernacle. And in John chapter 1, John uses, now I think most of the English translations say, the word became flesh, and what does it say? Dwelt among us. But it's literally this word, tabernacled. It's he set up a tent with us. Have you ever thought of Jesus as basically setting up a tent and traveling around with his people. Well, in fact, he actually says that very thing. Two places, in Luke and also in Matthew, he says, the Son of Man, or actually he says first, um, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man, which is the way he regularly talked to himself, the Son of Man has nowhere 
to rest his head. Jesus expresses to us the heart of God with flesh on it. He leaves the comfort of being with his Father and the Spirit in perfect relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. He leaves that. He comes and he basically takes on a tent, tabernacles among us. This is what John says is so extraordinary to understand. This God has taken a tent and dwelt among us. And then he went around with us, content to be the vagabond God, while we ourselves were still unsettled. That's the heart of your God. Do you see Jesus as the one who puts you first? Honestly, I'm asking you that question. Have you ever just had your heart warmed by the thought that God puts me first? There's this great, um, great quote by Charles Spurgeon, the old Baptist preacher, where he said, you know, the, the true heart of, of a Christian when you get to heaven is, is to say, man, me, a Christian? <laughs> Who would have thought? And here, here I am, right? Does the grace of God really touch your heart? So that Jesus is the ultimate expression of the heart of God. He's also the ultimate expression of the plan of God. Because here's the thing. God makes this promise here. And as we're going to see, if you, if you read the books of Kings and Chronicles, you will find that most of the children of David, most of his dynasty, uh, are actually a disaster. And you find pretty quickly that if our hope is in a child of David, it doesn't look like there's much hope. None of the children of David are really good enough. None of the children of David really secure the safe place that God's people are promised here. But God never abandons his commitment to giving his people a refuge. And eventually, he sends one born of a virgin to become that refuge. This is why Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it again. And John says he was referring to his body. Jesus is the embodiment of the temple. What makes the temple the temple? Not just its cool building. It's the place where God and man meet together, commune together. At this stage, there needs to be bloody sacrifices to be teaching God's people that you can't stand in the presence of a holy God. You can't worship a holy God without somebody going under the knife. But eventually Jesus is going to do that. And the book of Hebrews says he's going to open a new and living way so that we can come boldly before the throne and into his presence. And Yahweh's promise will not be broken. Look at this. Death won't annul it. That's what verse 12 says. David, even when you die... And you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood, and I'll restore his kingdom. Sin can't destroy it. And you see that in verse 14 and 15. I will be his father, talking about these kings to come, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him. God fully expects the children of David to not be able to to live the way they're supposed to live, but it won't thwart his promise 
Even time can't exist, exhaust this promise. Look at verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That's the promise. And that's what Jesus comes to do. Do you know the promises of God? Do you know the promises? Do you know the promises of God? Do they give you hope and confidence? See, Christians should be those who live on the promises of God. I was thinking about this today. Isn't it, you know, we all, you know, even though you guys are in college, still we play these little junior high games sometimes where when you're thinking about asking somebody out, you try to find out whether or not they like you, right? No, that probably doesn't happen in college, does it? No. But, you know, you can understand because it really changes your confidence asking somebody out if you've already heard from several of their friends that they really like you. Doesn't it? Now, I know that's kind of a silly example, but listen, you have the promises of God. And that really changes the way you ask him for things. It changes the way you relate to him when you know the promises of God. And so many Christians are just sort of like throwing up like Hail Mary prayers, God, if you can hear me, they don't know the promises of God. Faith feeds on the promises of God. If you are a Christian and you want to grow, faith feeds on the promises of God. If you're not a Christian and you want to understand more about what Christianity is about, the covenant is a promise. I will be your God. You will be my people. And God says, I will undertake everything to make that come to pass. Do you understand the reason the good news is good news is because it's a promise, not a law agreement. Here's what I mean. And Paul brings this out in Galatians, but I'll just tell you briefly. It's like if I said to Drew, man, if you will come over to my house on Friday and mow the lawn, I'll give you a million dollars. He'd probably show up. He'd figure out a way to get a lawnmower. He'd figure out how to get there, right? And it seems like a pretty gracious offer, doesn't it? Because it's really a huge overpayment for what he's going to do. But do you understand, that is basically a law agreement. He has to do his part, and then I do my part. And that's what most people think Christianity is. But Christianity, Paul says, is not that at all. The heart of the gospel is a promise. I will be your God, you will be my people, and nothing will stop me, God says, from that reality coming to pass. And I will send my son to secure that promise. Do you know what the gospel is? The gospel is to say, Drew, I'm going to give you a million dollars. And for Drew to get the money, the only one that needs to be faithful is me. That's why it's good news. So I don't care how little you think your part is. If you think you've got a part in this equation, that God gives you his grace in response for something that you do or something you bring to the table, you don't understand the good news of the gospel. That's what's promised here. Now, what happens when you ponder and pray that promise? Because that's what, that's what happens next. David just sits in this. Don't you love it? Verse 18, David goes in and sits before the Lord. That means literally he sat before the Ark of the Covenant. And he ponders. Man, we need to do that more. Pondering the promises of God and the implications of them. And you can tell from his language, he's just blown away. And he keeps using this phrase, sovereign Lord, sovereign Lord. Who am I, he says, and what is my family, this is verse 18, that you've brought me this far? And as if that were not enough, that you've brought me rest, that you've brought me into your presence, 
Now you make these incredible promises that go even beyond my own lifespan. I just can't believe it, David's saying. He sits and he rehearses all the good things that God has done, and it gives him hope for the future. Now this is where we get into that hymn, Amazing Grace, and John Newton's original title for it, Faith's, it's hard to say faith, apostrophe S, Faith's Review and Expectation. That hymn actually was first introduced on a New Year's Day service. John Newton in his church there at Olney would regularly have a special service on New Year's Day where they would look back at God's grace in the past year and they would talk about the promises of God and how they knew that God would continue to be with them. And that's what he wrote that hymn for. Now that verse, when we've been there 10,000 years, is actually not a verse that John Newton wrote. You might have noticed when we sang it, you're like, wait, where's that verse? That verse actually came from another hymn, and it got tacked on to Amazing Grace in the late 19th century. Okay, That's not a bad verse, but if you understand the way it's originally written, it really brings out this passage. Basically, you know, who am I? Amazing Grace was not John Newton's conversion hymn. Sometimes people make, tell that story like he was the slave ship captain, and then he got converted in a thunderstorm, and he wrote that hymn. That's not true at all. That's not true. He's blown away. Amazing Grace comes out of pondering this passage and finding himself in it. David says, who am I? And John Newton says, who am I? Amazing Grace. I remember years ago, um, this guy, Brennan Manning, um, I think, didn't he pass away not too long ago? Maybe last year? Yeah, you guys don't know. I think that's true, right? I had an opportunity one time to have lunch with him. I was just hanging out with this pastor friend of mine, and Brennan came to town, and they, um, my friend was like, hey, come to lunch. And I came to lunch, and we got to hang out. And I went and heard him speak that night, and I, I don't remember a lot of what he said. He was a guy that wrote some, some really great books uh, on really helping Christians understand what God's love is like. I'd have some difference of opinion with him on some things. But I'll never forget something he did at the end of that first talk. He basically had this little cassette player little handheld cassette player and at the end of his talk very very high tech he held that thing up that little tiny speaker to the to this microphone he made us all close our eyes and he played this Irish tenor a cappella singing Amazing Grace and I'll just tell you for the first time really by not singing the song but listening to the song I realized oh I thought this song was I'm a wretch I'm a wretch I'm a wretch no it's amazing grace that saved a wretch. Now, both of those are true, but it really makes a difference where the accent is placed. And when you read David's prayer here, there is the who am I, but what has really filled his heart is who are you, God, and what have you done, and what have you promised? And I find a lot of Christians a lot, especially if they've grown up in the church, it's easier for them to think of themselves as wretches than it is to think of themselves as those who have been the beneficiaries of amazing grace. And it's worth thinking about. And then think about how the prayer. A couple points just about prayer. There's a whole theology of prayer in verse 25, verse B. Now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you've made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised. 
Now, some people are like, you know, does prayer change God's mind? Some of those debates are really silly. Because what do you do with a verse like this? Do as you promised is not a prayer about changing God's mind. But you find these kind of prayers all the time in the Bible. I was talking with somebody the other day, and I realized as I was talking to them, like most of your prayers and most of the prayers of people I know are prayers for God to give me an answer to whether I should do this or whether I should do that. I'm not sure I can find some good examples of those kind of prayers in the Bible at all. There are prayers for deliverance, but prayers for God to tell you what to do and which road to take, I'm not sure I can think of any of those. These are the kind of prayers you find in the Bible all the time. God, thank you for your promise. Now do as you promised. And let me tell you, if you struggle with feeling like your prayers are very tentative and very cold, one of the reasons might be because you're praying for stuff you're not sure you should be praying for. It really helps animate and bring life to your prayers when you pray prayers like this. God, you have promised to complete the good work you began, so do that in my poor intern's life. <laughs> right? No, that, seriously, I had to wake you guys up a little bit. No, pray those kind of prayers for your friends. God, you've promised this. You've promised this. Pray these prayers for yourself. Ask people to pray these kind of prayers for yourself. Do as you promised. Do as you promised. And do it for your glory. That's what he says. For your name's sake. It's one thing to pray for an answer to a decision you need to make. It's quite another thing to pray, God, do what you promised. And I will tell you, children get this. I have three of them. And one of them is definitely training to be a lawyer. Because... I, I, and I was even asking them at dinner, I was asking, like, can you think of the last time that you did this to me? Where you said, Dad, you promised. They trip me up on that all the time. They do it so much that they couldn't even think of a particular example. Because it happens virtually at least a couple times a week. What I mean is, it's one thing for children to ask their father for something based solely on his character. But if they've got his character and his promise... That, that brings boldness and confidence. And you have a heavenly father who has revealed his heart and his character and his promise. Do you use any of those things when you're feeling discouraged? Do you use any of those things when it comes to pray? What a great privilege we have. God reveals his heart. Was there ever a God like this that revealed his heart to his people? All the contrasting gods that lived around these people, all the other gods that were worshipped, they didn't reveal their heart to their people. They basically said, you figure out what won't make us angry, and maybe we'll rain on your crops. That's how most people thought of God. And you know what? Way too many Christians, if they really are honest, think of God that way. But God reveals his heart. He wants to put us first. He does put us first. And nothing, not death, not unfaithful servants and children, not time itself will thwart his promise to be our God and to make us his people. To dwell with him forever in a city that's so safe that gates never need to be closed. In a city so bright and full of light that we won't even need the sun. That's the promise of God. And Jesus died to secure it. Let's pray.